Well, such a lovely ball over the top here, and the run in behind for England is by turn. What a chip! What a goal! The winner is Qatar. It is not safe for someone like me to watch the World Cup in Qatar. The legacy of this tournament is the change in society. More than 6,500 migrant workers have died in Qatar since it won the right to host the World Cup. Officials fined a million US dollars while lobbying them to the Qatar. I'm rapidly falling out of love with football. I just wonder what's the point anymore, you know. If I speak, I am in, in big trouble. Hello and welcome to Pro Revolution Soccer. My name's Tom Williams and with me is the avuncular figure, the one with the gravitas, the aura, the smell of wisdom, the Desmond Lynham of Pro Revo, Keir Milburn. How the devil are you, Keir? I'm very well, thank you, Tom. I am indeed going for an avuncular linum this this afternoon, so uh, uh, spot on. I'm I'm slightly conscious now that if Keir's the Desmond Lynham figure, that means I'm the Mark Lawrenson figure, in which case I should be pensioned off to Crinkly Bottom or wherever it is they're keeping Loro now. But Loro would not be on a Navara podcast, and Loro would certainly not be telling you what I'm about to tell you, which is that if you're enjoying this podcast, and why wouldn't you be... And you decide you'd like to support Navarra Media in making more political and, for that matter, football content that you simply can't find anywhere else. Why not become a supporter? Head to navarra.media slash support and set up a donation for as little as a pound a month or maybe significantly more if you're a real high roller. Now, on to football matters. A lot of excitement this week, actually. Some nice football, but all of it, of course, with an asterisk next to it because that's how sports washing works. More of this later. Keir, what have you made of the last week of the World Cup? Let me jump on the sports washing bandwagon because I've been quite excited and I've been sort of enjoying bits of it. Uh, and I thought what was going on, I thought I had a grip on what was going on in this World Cup because in the, in, the, in, the, in the opening weeks, there were quite a few upsets. I was quite enjoying Asian and African teams winning and progressing. And that is partly because, um, you know, the, the level of football has improved in, in those regions. But I also thought, oh, perhaps what's going on is that like because this is a November World Cup, the European teams are tired and then they're basically not winning. And then I thought, oh, well, it, we've got to the round of 16. That seems to be fading away. And it's like the teams we've got through there are probably good enough, basically, to overcome any sort of tiredness. But then Morocco beat Spain. So that blows that out of the window. I was pretty chuffed about that, even though the football wasn't particularly great. And I was quite, I, I quite enjoyed watching videos of Moroccan fans <laughs> parading around London. Yeah, so that's sort of my take, basically. Tom? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it, it sort of when you see when you, you see those sort of moments of collective joy happening, you are reminded of what we're fighting for, actually, of what of what of what we're certainly we on this uh, on this podcast, on this project uh, are trying to fight for anyway. So, yeah, I think I think there is, you know, as, as we say, there is an asterisk by it, but I think there is um, there is joy to be had from it, certainly. So we're joined today by Navarra's Labour Movement correspondent, Polly Smythe, who is doing some of the most important work in media at the moment, some of the most important work in all of our movement at the moment, which is reporting on trade unionism from the left and, and thereby holding those in power to account. Hello, Polly. Hi, everybody. And we're also joined by the writer, the filmmaker, the cultural critic and Clapton CFC goal machine, the words debut hat-trick have been bandied about. Juliet Jakes. Hello, Juliet. Hey, how you doing? Juliet, you and I have sort of discussed this briefly just on the phone over the couple of last weeks, but how have you been feeling about this tournament? Well, it's an interesting one. I decided after 
the day when Russia 2018 and Qatar 2022 were awarded, ultimately decided that I would watch the Russia tournament and boycott the Qatar tournament on the grounds that Russia is actually a footballing country. You can play football in Russia in the summer. Uh, and as time went on, obviously, you know, reflected that uh, whatever your um, misgivings about the Putin regime, they haven't killed thousands of people purely in the building of the stadia, uh, as has been the case for Qatar. Um, as this tournament rolled around, I thought, well, you know, maybe I won't boycott it. An individual boycott doesn't really do anything. Why let FIFA and their, you know, rampant corruption take away something I love? But I've just found I wasn't able to enjoy it. I was watching the um, the first England game and somebody shared a picture on Twitter of um, of migrant workers being shipped back to Nepal in cardboard coffins and a cargo hold of a plane. And I thought, no, I just I don't want to partake in this. And since then, I've I've not really watched it. I've sort of caught highlights here and there. I am still following it. Um, and, you know, the sort of the petty football fan in me, um, as somebody who has long argued uh, for the unwatchability of Spain, uh, that they put together like a thousand passes against Morocco uh, and one shot on target and then basically passed their penalties sideways in the shootout. Um, so, you know, the kind of childish spitefulness uh, somehow persists, even though I'm not actually <laughs> watching the tournament. Uh, yeah. I think I think whether you're sort of boycotting or not, or, or whatever kind of your feelings are about it. I, I think the feelings that we're all sort of experiencing are probably a symptom of powerlessness. And that powerlessness stems mainly from a lack of organisation, actually. Now, there are, there are of course, organisations that are supposed to represent our interests, but they don't always do so. And that brings us to a really excellent story that Polly has done on the rather peculiar relationship between the International Trade Union Confederation and the Qatari government. Uh, Polly, what did you find out in your reporting? Well, it's almost a sort of hidden scandal of the World Cup, really. Um, why is it that this body who is supposed to be looking after the, you know, the labour rights of migrant workers in Qatar gone from being, you know, Qatar's most ardent critic, you know, initially um, when Qatar was awarded the World Cup in 2010, the um, ITUC were calling Qatar a slave state, calling it a country without a conscience, you know, and they were calling for them to have the World Cup stripped. And, you know, in a in the space of kind of 10 years, they're now Qatar's biggest cheerleader, but not in a way that reflects what is happening on the ground. Uh, and it's a really interesting story. It's, it's kind of very complicated. Um, the ITUC was initially very critical, but it doesn't necessarily really have teeth to mm. kind of you know, make Qatar do anything. Mm. Um, and so kind of the ITUC ended up working alongside um, the UN agency, the International Labour Organization. Together, they put forward um, a threat of an official commission of inquiry, which is the ILO's most high-level investigative procedure and said, you know, if you do not comply in investigating forced labour, we will investigate it for you. At which point Qatar, who at that point had been, you know, actively fighting the ILO off, turned around and said, um, uh, if you agree to withdraw the commission, we will cooperate with you. Um, and so at this moment where the ITUC and the ILO had really incredible leverage over Qatar and they could have forced through this commission. They didn't and they just changed their tune very quickly. And before any changes were actually made, the ITUC started saying that Qatar was bringing in a new era for workers' rights. Mm. They were calling <laughs> really explicitly on Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, who were at the time diplomatically and economically blockading Qatar to follow Qatar's lead. So when reforms did arrive, which they did in um, 2020, which is, you know, 
10 years after the World Cup was awarded. And those reforms were things like removal of some elements of the kafala system, which is the um, sponsorship system, which was responsible for kind of the majority of the abuse of migrant workers, a minimum wage of around one pound an hour um, and the establishment of workers' committees, which are good reforms, but have to be seriously caveated in the fact that they arrived after the majority of construction was completed and also Mm. are kind of only as good as implementation, which is extremely poor. Um, You would think that the ITUC might put out a sort of lukewarm statement saying something has been done, but it's not gone far enough. Instead, um, the general secretary, well, then the then general secretary of the ITUC, Sharon Barrow, said, the people who attack Qatar for its labor laws from outside the country, we say, go have a look. Workers can achieve justice in Qatar. And my advice to fans is to go to the World Cup and have fun. So a complete 180, um, which makes them a total outlier. You know, you, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, Migrants' Rights, are um, you know, lots of journalists are kind of pointing out the myriad of ways in which Hmm. these reforms are not changing the lives of the kind of extremely vulnerable migrant workers. But yet you have the ITUC coming out to bat for Qatar in this extreme way. Is this a case of the sadly quite common naivety on the part of the bureaucracies of trade unions with regard to employers and, and the difference between what they'll agree to and what they'll actually do? Or was there perhaps something else going on here? I mean, that is the question. Why are the ITUC doing what they're doing? You know, and, and what you point to is a, is a fairly common dynamic, you know, either through naivety um, or kind of through hoping to frame minimal concessions extracted in a, in a more positive light to kind of mm. justify the years and years of, of work. We see that a lot. And, you know, I don't think the Qatar are necessarily an easy partner for the ITUC and the ILO to work with. Migrants' rights have, have spoken about Qatar's off-stadium performance as kind of uh, criticised. They then engage with that criticism, you know, sensibly. They then offend anyway and then become very defensive. And it's kind of rinse and repeat. So, you know, they're not an easy kind of partner to work with. That being said, I actually don't think that is what is happening here in the slightest. It's actually not just that the ITUC are cheerleading, but they're actively defending Qatar. Um, So for me, I think one of the most indicative uh, examples of this is one of the most contentious issues around the World Cup has been the number of migrant labourers who've died. Um, You know, the Guardian reported it was over 6,500. Qatar reported um, 37 migrant labourers dying, with three of those dying in workplace accidents, although they've actually revised that number during the tournament to um, about 500. But we all know this confusion stems from Qatar's refusal to investigate the deaths to allow the cause of death to be determined, often just saying it was a natural death, you know, for young men who had absolutely no prior health conditions. And, you know, often it's it's a, um, exposure to extreme heat. And also as well, the infrastructure projects that migrant labourers are involved on are so complicated. There's international contractors and subcontractors. And so that's the reason why it's really difficult to kind of pinpoint the number of um, migrant labourers who've died. Sharon Burrows, the general secretary of the ITUC until very recently, said the claim that more than 6,000 workers had died at construction sites over the past decade was a myth. So for me, that kind of coming out to bat for Qatar is absolutely inexplicable. I don't really understand why the ITUC are doing it. And it doesn't, for me, sit in that kind of, um, that frequent refrain of trying to put a positive spin on actually what has not been that successful. Yeah, it's quite shocking, isn't it? Um Is this an example of the need for left-wingers and perhaps in this case specifically left-wing football fans to be active in their unions and holding their representatives to account and building power in their unions? Or is there even even a democratic mechanism through which to do that with the ITUC? Yeah, so because the ITUC is this kind of global umbrella body, um, membership doesn't work in the same way that, you know, kind of membership of a a straightforward um, trade union would, um, like, Mm. say, you know, in the UK, the RMT or CWU. So, yeah, it is harder to kind of have influence in that sense. But I do think 
that there's still a lesson in, in this for um, you know for a trade unionists, which is on the left we have this refrain, which is join a union, um, which you know I find quite grating because workers are the union. You know, joining the union is the first step, and obviously we all should be in you know in a union. I'm in a union, but that is not where your engagement ends. And I think it's a kind of good lesson to not be complacent and to expect the bodies who are meant to look out for for laborers, you know, especially migrant laborers, not just to assume that they're going to do that work without kind of being challenged and without being um, forced to. Yeah. We had Kate Mason on the podcast a couple of weeks ago and on the documentary that she made about Qatar, she was told by a Qatari dignitary that improving working conditions has to be a global project. Now, this was said as a, as a way of sort of like this guy washing his hands of what was going on, I, I think, in some ways. But is that an example of somebody being sort of accidentally right? I mean, what can we, what can we learn from the disgrace and tragedy of Qatar in terms of what our movement needs to do? Completely. I mean, the lesson of Qatar shouldn't be, wow, didn't Qatar behave badly? But actually, um, look how Qatar has highlighted the fact that we're all implicated in a system that relies on um, migrant labour um, as a global community. Qatar has been a very stark example of um, you know, how the economic system is, when it's predicated on migrant labour, people's economic function tends to you know, come prior to their, um, to their rights. And, you know, and in the UK, literally, in, I think in the same week that the World Cup um, kicked off in the UK, Nepali workers um, were facing a really similar dynamic to um, workers in Qatar. Yeah, so one of the big issues about the World Cup in Qatar was that um, migrant workers paid really extortionate fees to recruiters on top of flights to get to Qatar. And then they were promised um, you know, X length of work, which would allow them to pay off that debt. And then actually they were sent home often much sooner, which meant that they were going home carrying that debt. Well, the same things happened in the UK where Nepali workers were hired to pick fruit on British farms um, and they were promised they were going to be here for six months and they were sent home, you know, in under two months. So this is like a global economic system. It's notable that the, the, the communities that are being targeted by recruiters are the communities that are suffering the worst impacts of, of climate change globally, you know, um, notably like in South Asia and North Africa. So yeah, I think it's a really important lesson for all of us that, you know, that we can't just point to Qatar and say, gosh, you know, wasn't that so bad? We as the West are completely implicated yeah there we go and and given that the parliamentary route is blocked for the left at the moment should left-wing football fans like ourselves who want to build fan power be trying to get our unions involved with that um yeah it's funny i was this made me think um I was thinking the other day, I heard um, Mick Lynch speaking, I can't remember where it was a while ago, and he was saying, and, you know, it was him and Eddie Dempsey, and Eddie Dempsey was talking about the Millwall score, and he's, you know, obviously a big Millwall fan, and then Mick Lynch was saying, you know, yep, I follow Cork City, I follow Chelsea, I follow Brentford, and uh, any other club you name, I'll, I'll happen to be behind, <laughs> uh, which is a, a funny uh, funny example of how unions and um and football kind of crossover. But yeah, I think that, I think, you know, there's already a lot of really great football community engagement. Fans Points Food Banks, I think, is a good example, you know, which is run by Liverpool and Everton supporters um, on the overground on the way in. I passed Millwall, which obviously back in 2017 fought off a compulsory purchase order from Lotion Council, which was part of a £1 billion regeneration project known as New Bermondsey. And, you know, and that was done um, by the Association of Millwall supporters. Um, you know, and they're kind of a more, even more explicit example is uh, back in 2019 when Liverpool were playing playing in the FIFA Club World Cup, which was being held in Qatar, um, they refused to stay in a hotel, the, um, the Kempinski, because the club had concerns around the company's track records on workers' rights. So, the, you know, there are lots of examples where, um, you know, where workers' rights and kind of community engagement overlap really neatly. But yeah, I think that um, left-wing fans should not, you know, like you and, you know, Kieran, Tom, you both say, you know, you, you don't leave your politics at the turnstile and kind of um, viewing these as joined up and connected issues, I think is really important. 
I was going to try and bring Juliet back in at this point because, you know, we've already said that, you know, the World Cup, <laughs> all of this stuff going on in Qatar means that Juliet's not being able to enjoy something that she she loves basically most times and it's on. Um, and, and we've said before in this podcast, that like Qatar gaining the World Cup and using it for sports washing. That's the dynamics that are going on. You know, they own PSG, Man United and Liverpool are up for sale. Who can buy them? The sovereign wealth funds of oil rich nations or US hedge funds or something like that. So why do we love football? Why why have we not given up on this horrific machine? Could you help us out with that, Juliet? To a point, maybe. I mean, I think all four of us would probably agree that there is something very, very fundamental in the kind of aesthetics of football, you know, what happens on the pitch that we find compelling, um, visually compulsive. I mean, I always say that the least interesting thing about football is what happens on the pitch um, because there's so much about the culture of football and the politics of football that is really fascinating. And if you're somebody who loves the sport, the structure of the sport, the style of the sport, uh, then you have to spend a lot of time um, unpicking, deciding when you're going to look the other way on an issue, when you're going to maybe get involved in challenging a problem in the sport, if you have a problem with it. For, for sort of, you know, left-wingers, it, it makes uh, a constant demand on your conscience and your ethics. Uh, but at the core of it, you know, I, I, love, I love the game. You know, I love watching a really well-executed move or a brilliantly struck shot or a great save or, you know, a really sort of mazy dribble or whatever. And everything else stems from there, I think. I mean, it's true that I like, when, I, when I've been watching the World Cup... There is this, it's not a suspension of disbelief, was it? It, 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 it? Perhaps it is that parking of your politics at the turnstile that we say over and over again, we're not doing it. But it, I just can't, you know, that both those two Richarlison goals, which I'm, I'm sure you've seen on the highlights, the one the other day was just absolutely superb. They're just aesthetically beautiful pieces of art in some sorts of senses. Let, let me do this thing now. I want to sort of like interview Tom, actually, because Tom wrote a really, really beautiful article about football, and dad's odd football on his dad. Tom, will you recount the sort of what you were trying to get across in that article? So I think that relates to what Juliet said about, you know, perhaps the most interesting thing about football, perhaps one of the biggest things of why 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 it's so loved is actually what goes on off the pitch. Yeah, um, my my birth father buggered off when my brother and I were, were quite little and um, we became completely estranged from him really from when I was about sort of nine or ten, I think. And my mum got a boyfriend, and as children often are, I was probably a bit on the fence about about that. And then my, my stepdad, the guy who became my stepdad, Barry, started taking me to the Dell, which was then the home of my beloved Southampton Football Club. And um, we kind of got to know each other through that, really, I mean, his his early experiences of English football, he comes from Western Australia originally. So his first experience of, of English football was as, you know, at that point, a, a Knott's Forest supporter because he just used to watch, you know, Brian Clough's Forest teams in the late 70s on, on the telly. And in, in Australian rules football, which he was also a fan of, there's no segregation of fans. So when he moved to this country, he went to... Loftus Road to watch Forrest play QPR and rather unwisely was cheering on Forrest in the home end and some guy behind him got his dick out and pissed on him. 
so that was that was my old man's introduction to to English football. A rather more wholesome um, relationship with it began when we started going to it together. We bonded over a, a sort of a developing love of, of Southampton Football Club and also developing frustration with Southampton Football Club. We've, over the years, you know, we've never seen Saints win anything apart from the Johnson's Paint Trophy, but we've seen some fabulous players. The club has developed the likes of Gareth Bale and, and Luke Shaw. We've seen Sadio Mane and Virgil van Dijk playing for us. But more to the point, we've developed this... You know, one of the most nourishing and nurturing and important relationships in my life. And we've done that because of this kind of emotional faucet that football provides, I think, for men a lot of the time. Now, that that is not me kind of buying into gender essentialisms. It's just, it's just a fact that men my age were still told at school you know boys don't cry and stuff like that and I think uh, I think I think football sometimes has this kind of um, death of Diana effect in that it's kind of all right to uh, cry uh, when your team loses or indeed wins sometimes and it's it's okay to jump up and, and hug your mate you know in the same way that Diana's funeral kind of legitimated British people showing showing sort of like emotions that were kind of like a repressed a lot of the time. I think football kind of does that for, for men of a certain age. Uh, I think that is changing. But the the central and I think most important contention of the, the piece that I wrote for Navarra is that what I want, what we want, my dad and I, but also everyone who's involved in this project, what we want is for everybody to be able to access the emotional and relational richnesses that you can access through football. If you are, you know, a white middle-aged guy. Now, I'm, I'm kind of priced out of football at the moment. I can't, I can't really afford to, to go and watch Southampton very much, very often at the moment. I certainly can't afford to take my little boy. I mean, he's a bit young at the moment. But, but that's, that's one barrier to, to participation in this, this thing that we love called football. But there are lots and lots of other barriers. The game is still rife with sexism and racism, heteronormativity. And I really, really want you know, as part of this project, actually, to try and address the pulling down of some of these, some of these barriers, because I want everybody to be able to get as much out of the game as as I have done over the years, and that my my father and I have 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 done over the years. Sorry, that's a very rambly answer. I wasn't really prepared for the question. You can probably tell whether I was sort of looking in another direction. It is quite a, it is quite an emotive thing. No, I wasn't rambly at all. It was nice, and the the article is fantastic. I thought. You do touch on this other bit about like I, football can't just be something which is completely dependent on, on it being aesthetically pleasing. I know that because one of my favourite seasons watching Leeds was when we got relegated to League One and we were deducted 15 points. Dennis Wise was managing, so the football was not pretty, right? This was, <laughs> but like the feeling of like, you know, we're, we're us against the world in the, in the, the atmosphere in the ground, et cetera. It just, it just made it like a really special, special season. And, and we would have gone up if we hadn't have had the 15 points, dele- um, the 15 points deducted, et cetera, and all these sorts of things. Um, and it is that thing, and it's that sort of history of like memories, basically, like a shared sort of reservoir of memories. That, that you you form this strong emotional bond with a, a with a, with a team, which does mean you know that this should be something which can be accessible by all. And I think he has improved football in that in that sort of sense. 
I think it's so interesting when you say it comes back to dads, you know, um, my dad really, I'm, I'm estranged from my dad and he really disparaged my interests kind of as a, as a, when I was growing up as a girl in football and I had such a prickly response to it. You know, I, I sort of, whenever I was speaking about it, I always felt that someone was trying to work out how much or how little I knew. Um, and so actually I think, you know, I'm only a really recent football fan, only in the last couple of years have I kind of come to it. And, you know, my friends and I in the pub, we sat down and we were like, right, we both don't know anything, but we want to get involved in the chat. What are some good, what good, some good one lines we always hear? And we like compiled a little list of like, kind of shit football sayings like you know it's a it's a game of two halves <laughs> um or you know oh you've got to wait the full 90 minutes um which then also got increasingly technical but also less applicable like oh yeah they they lack uh they lack talent in their final third but we, we just had no <laughs> idea in what context to apply it we're like probably saying about the best teams um but I think it's really nice to talk about football as someone who's come to it later in life um because I do think that you know there is a sense sometimes that you know especially in in the kind of Premier League or, or you know when you're watching not World Cup games Games, um, that you have to have a kind of requisite level of knowledge um, and that, that can kind of be alienating and, and that, um, yeah, it's, it's actually so nice to talk about it. It's just as an entrance for fun. You can just watch a game and, and like the kit or, you know, or um, for me, the World Cup, I love the anthems. Um, yeah, so I think it's really nice to kind of be more expansive about that conversation. God, the Moroccan anthem is a banger. <laughs> Absolute banger. Um, Juliet, you have sort of reconnected over the past couple of years, particularly after, you know, things started to reopen again after lockdowns and, and that sort of stuff through through non-league football. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, um, there was a strange interregnum between the first COVID lockdown in spring 2020 and the second one uh, in November and then the long one in December through to March or so, 2021. And one of the uh, limited amounts of socialising you're allowed to do was you're allowed to go to football matches at tier seven or below, as long as they were below um, 30% capacity, I think. Uh, and as somebody who despises all other forms of outdoor socialising, and especially picnics, I really hate picnics, um, <laughs> I jumped at the chance to be able to do something social that would actually feel like relatively normal. Um, for the most part, going to watch like my my the non-league team that I grew up with and like briefly played for as a teenager, um, Hawley Town, wasn't that different with a 30% capacity limit. And um, <laughs> it was a nice way of having some surprise and some novelty at a time when there was very little. It was a nice way of being able to go to different parts of london where i live or the surrounding area uh and seeing different towns even if they were just like leatherhead or you know carshorton or dorking or something um and it was a nice thing to be able to do with friends and you know be able to just buy a drink and hang out and you know non-league football it's not always beautiful but it's often very kind of funny uh the stakes are quite low the fan culture is often very amusing uh there's a much closer relationship between players and fans i mean you were just talking about football and families and i went to um to an aylesbury united game last february at a point when there wasn't a lockdown but lots of stuff had been closed because of the um the omicron wave of covid 
Aylesbury were playing a team called Tame United. And there was a group of sort of Aylesbury Ultras, which is about eight blokes in their 50s who were really into Half Man, Half Biscuit. And um, <laughs> they basically just decided they were just going to pick on the uh, Tame centre-back and just, you know, made all sorts of, you know, just ch- chanted loads of things about him being bored and fat and slow and useless and all the rest of it. And after about 10 minutes of this, I turned around to a couple next to me and just gave them a look as if to say, what are those guys like? And the woman just said, Number five is my son. I really wish they'd knock it off. <laughs> um, so there's, there's sort of all, all these sort of like, you know, encounters like that that you don't really get uh, in the Premier League. And at the time I was obviously watching uh, Norwich City in the Premier League and that was just sort of miserable almost from start to finish. So um, the non-league football uh, provided, you know, a sense of community, um, something kind of fun. I mean, ultimately, right, the main reason I like football, I mean, I could... Well, wang on all day about i don't know the the beauty and genius of sedan or maradona or whatever but like football offers pretty much infinite capacity for grown men in particular i mean i watch a lot of women's football but i'm talking more about men here to just screw up and behave like five-year-olds um and that's what i like about it football is very very funny and really stupid um you know, I was thinking this morning about the, the Bill Shankly line about how football is, you know, not a matter of life and death. It's much more important than that. And I wondered if Shankly had been alive for Hazel or Hillsborough uh, or let alone this Qatar World Cup, whether he'd have held the same line. Um, but what I like about football is that it actually really isn't important. And it's just treated as if it is. Uh, and the gulf between those two things is often where the mm. sport just becomes really amusing. We've sort of set up this thing of like, you know, that there, there, there are different attachments to football. One of them is like this, the elite sport, basically the absolute genius of some football players and the joy in, in watching them. And then behind that is just these sort of like social bonds, which which connect to, to smaller teams as well as bigger teams and all this sort of this sort of stuff. So one of the things we're trying to get at is Man United and Liverpool are up for sale and no doubt they'll be bought by... Well, they could be bought by Saudi Arabia. There are rumours that the Saudi Arabia want to get rid of Newcastle and buy Man United. And like, you know, that I imagine that Man United fans, most Man United fans would probably be happy about that. And what you get with that, what you get is, you know, you get the best the best players in the world, etc. So the question me and Tom were thinking was, look, if we could actually, if, if we could succeed in, in getting some of this corrupt money or this dirty money out of football, if we could succeed in actually making fair play rules actually stick, which you can't because, you know, Qatar have got this much, you know, so much money to spend in the courts that you can't actually make any of these rules or laws stick. Would football be better or worse? But the much better way of saying that is, look, would football be better under socialism? If we could get rid of inequality, would it be better or would it be worse under football? And perhaps we mean by that, one, would it be more enjoyable? Two, what would happen to the standard and perhaps even the style of play under socialism? Who wants to have a go at that? Well, I think months and months ago when Kira and I were first discussing what's what's turned into pro-revolution soccer, we ended up having quite a long conversation about this. And we initially agreed that the standard would probably drop because, to paraphrase Marx, if you're going to hunt in the morning, fish in the afternoon, rear cattle in the evening and criticise after dinner, you're not going to be as good a footballer as as if that was essentially all you do. But actually, even if that's the case theoretically, if there was suddenly a revolution 
uh, with a society transitioning to socialism. That society would be inheriting the same specialisations and divisions of labour from the previous paradigm. And actually, having thought about it a bit more, we ended up wondering if not having tactical paradigms imposed from above and having academies adopting kind of Paolo Freire approaches to coaching might actually lead to more exciting and interesting football. Not least because most of the time when Premier League teams are playing boring negative football, it's because they're worried about getting relegated and the financial difficulties that come with relegation. And if you decouple relegation from the financial impact it has due to capitalist relations, you're probably more likely to get attacking football. But that said, if you add somebody like me as commissar for football in Soviet Britain, I'd probably end up making all kinds of horrific compromises in an attempt to assemble a crack communist 11 capable of proving the efficacy of the immortal science of Marxism by absolutely dismantling the hostile capitalist pig dog countries in a World Cup. Wipe that, that, that spittle off your off your mouth there Tom should should point out this was basically the Soviet Union's uh, attitude towards football and they uh, they never got past yep. the semi-final I think they only made that once um yeah Valery Valery Lobanovsky's great you know Dynamo Kiev and uh, Soviet mm. team of the 80s I think was you know um nearly won the uh, the Euros and of course were dispatched by the uh, capitalist pig Marco Van Basten but um <laughs> yeah what a goal that was but Lovinovsky's style of football was much more focused on it's like systems of play which are actually much more you know like tactical innovation and and, and playing football as a system rather than individual players he was sort of in advance of his time in, in that sort of way which you could sort of make some sort of analysis with a more systemic sort of approach to 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 the world I think we might be stretching things I'm not sure I mean, it's worth thinking about how many of the great managers were socialists, right? I mean, you know, Clough and uh, Shankly mm-hmm. and uh, Klopp now, I think, you know, is at least sort of, you know, adjacent to our politics. Uh, I'm not sure about Renus Mikels and the um, the Dutch Total Football Team or like Johan Cruyff's politics. But, you know, I sort of feel that um, a lot of the best managers and the, the best sort of thinkers about the game, I don't know, most of them probably aren't conservatives, is my feeling. Mm. I wanted to introduce this like this theoretical bit in my, in, in my theoretical <laughs> half hour. Um, there's this book by Bernard Suits called The Grasshopper. I don't know if anyone's ever come across it. It's a very strange book. It's basically a book where this this, this philosopher is trying to define what a game is. And, he, and the, the definition he comes up is a game is is the overcoming of unnecessary obstacles. So that's what football is. We, we're not allowed to handle the ball. We have to use our feet, etc. And like he goes through this thing and then he says, like, what would we do in a utopia in which necessity had been removed. So necessity was no longer driving our actions. And like some people have sort of talked about, you know, perhaps socialism or communism as that, that where, um, you know, we stop having our lives and our actions determined by this, by the need of capital to grow, i.e. the needs for rich people to get a return on their investment, basically. And we, we freely choose our activity. And his, uh, his thing was, look, in that sort of world, when necessity is removed, we basically would we would play games, we would play football. <laughs> I think I'm making an argument that um, within football there is a little hint of socialism, a little hint of communism. People trying to get out, basically, uh, and that is where you know we want to choose these 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 areas of life, to set the set the constraints ourselves, set the unnecessary uh, obstacles ourselves, and then see if we can create art around it. You know. That's my contribution to this. Would football be better under socialism? <laughs> I mean, I was talking about going to watch lots of non-league football during the sort of COVID period. And football has always been something 
that you know as as somebody who has long-term history of depression um football you know my my relationship with football has often been tied up with that playing football as a means of you know dealing with depression uh improving my physical health and trying to improve my mental health with it but also watching football you know there's a way in which football for me is a sort of escape from the other parts of of my life and one of the things i like about going to the norwich games is that once every two weeks i get on a train with people and nobody is asking me about writing or about politics really and you know quite often we will we will either get lost in talking about you know norwich city and our memories of the club and our favorite players or we will just sort of go off on such a kind of wild and weird tangent that we'll realize we're more than an hour into the train journey from london to norwich and none of us know who we're playing um and we have to look it up um and obviously that got taken away during covid so sort of lost that very easy community that comes with um you know supporting a a club that you've supported for years and there's a big group of you who will go um and you know got very depressed uh like a lot of people i think during the lockdowns and filled out you know those those hospital anxiety and depression forms and one of the questions they always ask you is you know do you find you're enjoying activities like less than you used to and it's like well yeah of course i am because i'm being forced to do them in this very diminished way in this sort of horrific set of circumstances if i can do them at all um but nonetheless was trying to find some sort of fun in uh, in watching this non-league football. And I think one of the best days I had during the pandemic was just waking up one Saturday morning, realising I had no one to go to a game with and thinking, well, should I bother going on my own? Won't it be a bit lonely? Isn't it a bit sad to like go to games on your own? Uh, and I thought, no, I might as well. And I dragged myself down to... Um, to Surrey, where I went for like a beautiful walk up Box Hill, uh, and then to watch Leatherhead play Horsham in the Isthmian League. Um, and just found, you know, I, I quite like Leatherhead as a town, um, found a few sort of interesting buildings, um, enjoyed the support of Leatherhead. There's about 500 people there, and they're all really, really glad to be at a live football game. And you know, caught like a quite enjoyable one all draw between the two clubs, uh, and went home feeling a lot better than when I'd like woken up. Um, and that's the thing football can do to you. And it's often a surprise that it does that, you know, a, a non-league, a seventh division game between Leatherhead and Horsham might be like the least promising thing I've ever been to. <laughs> uh, and yet, and yet, uh, it turned out to be, you know, not only quite a good fun, but uh, at least temporarily quite, uh, quite good for what was ailing me. That's really lovely actually and, and and you know strangely enough quite similar to the to what i experienced when you made me go to that Derek german exhibition julia <laughs> after southampton had beaten norwich city 2-0 yeah <laughs> yeah i mean it was a bit of a trade yeah. <laughs> it was more of a pickup for me than for you <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, but it was you know it, it sort of like allowed me to access a bit of my myself that I, I think i'd kind of lost up until that point but it's it's interesting that football as a cultural form can do that in the same way, really, that art can. Um, I'm going to wrap up here by saying that Kira and I have both probably got quite a lot of mates that we've met through either watching football or maybe playing football who, when they haven't seen you for a while, they come up to you, they give you a big hug, they ask how, how your family is, and then after a while they'll say something like, you're still doing all that lefty shit. And my, my worry around Qatar and potential actions around the Qatar World Cup is that if I if I'd taken a really hardline stance on it, they would think I was being sanctimonious and and I'd lose them. And you might say, well, so what? But you know, for starters, they're my mates and I care about them. I love them. 
But also these are people who, when it came down to it, I and other sort of politically active people in our friendship groups were able to persuade them to vote Labour, not just in 2017 when it was kind of okay to do so, but in 2019 when it became slightly more sort of a scary thing to do. So fundamentally, these are not especially political people, but they're very decent people. And what that tells me is that taking action against something like the Qatari government is probably going to require a level of political consciousness that doesn't currently exist at the level necessary to change things at the moment. But that's not immutable and it can be changed. And I feel like the response to this podcast from exactly the kind of people that I'm talking about has has given me a lot of encouragement that that, 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 is, that is probably possible. In fact, that's a nice that's a nice lead into the topic for next week. We're going to record the final episode of this series of pro-revolution soccer. And of course... Any good left-wing project always ends by asking one question. What is to be done? That is a question we're going to be asking next week. We're going to be joined by uh, David Wearing to to talk about that, which will be quite exciting. I want to just thank Polly and Juliet. Thanks for coming on. Uh, really, really, really great. Um, I thought it's been a re- quite quite a nice chatty, <laughs> almost a cosy um, uh, episode this week, as, as, is, as is right when we're discussing why we like football. Part of that is because we like talking about football with other people that we like so that's great thanks so much for coming on Polly it's been really great to have you here thank you for having me and it's also been really great to have you here Juliet yeah thanks a lot don't forget to tune in next week where we'll we'll wrap up the whole series and we'll give you a detailed four-point plan for what is to be done and how we take this dirty money out of football and reclaim the sport we love thanks very much everyone tune in next week